Today we'll be in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Your bulletin says John 8, but um, for one week we're going to take a step out of John and step into Hebrews. Um, part of my thinking is, you know, last week we spent a lot of time talking about the death of Jesus and his ministry as our Savior, and then the resurrection on Easter and his ministry as our King. And, you know, I think a lot of times as Christians we don't know what happens after that. You know, we wonder, did Jesus semi-retire? Is he just kicking up his feet? Is he waiting to return? What is Jesus actually doing? And yet the Bible tells us that Jesus' ministry didn't stop at the resurrection, that Jesus is taking on an essential and key ministry now for us as a great high priest. So we're going to talk about that today from Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, I want to start today with a question. Have you ever had someone on the inside? Maybe a connection. Maybe it's someone with more influence than you or someone who works for a company that leads to nice benefits. Maybe it's VIP access to something or tickets you could never get your hands on yourself or a friend who's a realtor who can tell you about houses before they're on the market. Well, if, you, if you've experienced any of those things, you know how awesome it is to get those special privileges. It can even be small things. When I was in college, I had a roommate. He worked at Wendy's, so every night he would bring us home Frosties. Hey, it's a great benefit. Who doesn't want a free Frosty? Or I have a brother. He's 10 years older, and he's always been a huge blessing, but also a connection in my life. That because he's been further ahead, he helped me get my first real job. Recently, he hooked us up on getting a great deal on our car. Um, And even now, we call him and his wife Lily's sugar mama and daddy because they buy most of her good presents we would never buy. So it's nice to have a connection, someone that can help you get access that you would not have on your own. That's what an inside person does. Well, today, as we look at Hebrews 4, and we look at what it means for Jesus to be our great high priest, we'll see how his ministry, it's all about that for us. That on our own, we could never have a relationship with God. That we could never experience his presence. That we could never have confidence that God is hearing and answering our prayers. But because of Jesus, our great high priest, we have a heavenly connection who takes our name and our case before the Father. That Jesus actually tells us to come in his name and to name drop him. That because of who he is, because of the work he's done and his reign in heaven now, that he is our inside man that gets us every spiritual blessing we could desire. So remember that the work of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, it didn't stop. But he is right now in heaven acting on our behalf as our great high priest. And so we come to God with boldness through his name and his merits. Well, as we're in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 today, we'll notice that there are two commands or two imperatives, 
And each begins with the language of let us. And then each of those commands is supported by a reason for why we should and can do that. These two actions and motivations are our main points today. We're told to hold fast to our confession because we have a great high priest. And then we're told to draw near to God in confidence because this high priest sympathizes with us and our weakness. So hold fast and draw near. Well, anytime you jump into the middle of a book like we're doing with Hebrews, it's helpful to know a little bit of context. So what was going on that might inform what we talk about today? So two things to know. One, this audience receiving the letter, they were primarily Jewish Christians. And that's important because Hebrews is convincing them that everything the Old Testament talked about, everything going on in the religious rituals was pointing to Jesus. And we'll see that's especially true when it comes to the priesthood. The second thing is that this community was also being persecuted, that they were walking through very hard trials. So the temptation for them at this point is actually to walk away from Jesus, to stop drawing near, but to start to slip away. And so this letter is encouraging them, even in those trials, don't walk away, hold fast, and draw near. So our first point today will be hold fast to the great high priest. If you have your Bible, follow along with me. I'm going to read these verses again, starting just with verse 14. It says, Since then, or because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So let's start with the imperative, the action that we're being told to do here. Hebrews wants us to hold fast our confession. It's the main verb. It's telling us to hold firmly. Hebrews says elsewhere, elsewhere, a couple verses, 6.18, it says, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And then again in chapter 10, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The word for hold fast is used other places in the Bible to talk about not wavering, not swerving, but to seize onto something. The root word of this is to it signifies strength, might, and power. So the point is here, he's not talking about like a casual touch, but he's talking about a firm grip. I used to live in Chicago, and I'd regularly ride the train there. We called it the L. If you've ever been on a train or a subway, you know how fast they move and how quickly things shift around. What you learned was to hold on to a seat or to grab a bar and hold on. You could always tell the tourists because they didn't know that, and so they were a YouTube video waiting to happen. As soon as the train moved, they'd slip, they'd fall down, or they'd fall into someone else's lap. They weren't holding fast. Or if you have a teenager, think of their driving Maybe when they're driving fast around a corner or hitting the brakes, you learn to grab that lovely bar and to hold fast. Maybe it's not a teenager. Maybe it's your spouse. No nudges right now. I'm just saying hypothetically. Well, all of those ideas are talking about that's what it means to hold fast to something. You grab it, you get firm, and you hold on. And that's what Hebrews is saying, to hold fast to our confession, not let it slip away not be gentle about it, but to hold it firm. And our confession here, it's the faith handed down by the apostles 
but it's really our faith in Jesus. So to hold fast to our confession is simply to hold fast to Christ himself. So if that's the plea, the plea is hold fast to your confession. Don't give up. Don't let go. What reason or what motivation is given to us? Well, the first part of verse 14, it tells us why we should hold fast and why we can hold fast. I'll read it again. It says, because or since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Therefore, let us hold fast our confession. So in this tightly packaged phrase, you see three motivations for holding fast. The first is hold fast because Jesus is a great high priest. The second is hold fast because he's passed through the heavens and he's now exalted. And then the third reason is because Jesus is the Son of God. All three of these ideas, they connect back to Jesus being our great high priest. And so from, in Hebrews, from this point, so chapter 4, all the way through chapter 10, the priesthood of Christ becomes the focus. So it's important not just to have good theology about Jesus, though that's important, but the writer knows we need to understand the work and the ministry of Jesus right now for our own relationship and our own life. So we'll start generally and ask, well, what is a priest? And then who was a high priest? And then really zoom into how is Jesus our great high priest? Most of you, when you think of a priest, you probably think of you know, a religious person maybe in the Catholic church or Orthodox church, and they have that robe and they have the white collar. But whatever image pops to mind, a priest is simply someone who acts as an intermediary between, for spiritual representatives. So the idea was you have God who is holy, man who is sinful, and you need someone who can mediate that relationship. And that's what a priest does. In the Old Testament, a priest served that role for Israel by performing religious rituals and overseeing the sacrificial system. In doing so, they were caring for the people, representing them to God, but also representing God to the people. So that's a priest. You zoom in one level, then what is a high priest? Well, in the Old Testament, there was one high priest at a time. And among his duties, the most important one, which only he could do, and he did it only one time a year, was to observe the Day of Atonement. And essentially on this Day of Atonement, and it's a big important day in the life of Israel, that high priest, he would wash and cleanse himself. And then he would put on his priestly clothes. And on those clothes, on those outfit, if you remember in Exodus, that he had these jewels that had the names of Israel on his chest or his heart. And so what was happening was then when the the priest, this high priest, he would pass through the inner veil and he would go into the Holy of Holies as he was representing Israel, taking their name into God's presence. So even though this place was banned to everyone else in Israel, and it was off limits even to this person the rest of the year, this one time they would go in on behalf of the people into God's presence where the Ark of the Covenant was. What they were asked to do was to take blood, sprinkle it on the Ark of Covenant to ceremonially wash away their sins. Well, if you remember anything from Indiana Jones, Raiders from the Last Ark, movie I watched recently to do some sermon research, of course. If you remember in that, there's the Ark, which is covered in gold, and then on top there's that mercy seat. 
Now, in the movie, what happens when they pry the mercy seat open is all these crazy ghosts come out, and they kill everyone like a ray gun of fire. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it tell us that happens. I'm doubtful it does, but it gives you a a visual of what did the ark look like, and why was it even so sacred? Well, the ark was important, again, because it represented God's presence. That because of how holy and perfect and righteous he was, there was this ark in the Holy of Holies, and the people could not go in. That they could not draw near to God other than this one day by this one priest. And he had to offer sacrifices to atone for his sins and the people in order to do that. Well, the reason I'm telling you all of that is because that was to be a picture of what Jesus would do as our great high priest. So when Hebrews 4 here is referring to him in this role as not just a high priest, but the great high priest, it means that he fulfilled everything that person was doing. That in his life and death, he completely, once and for all, has atoned for sin. And when this verse says that he not only has done that, but he's now passed through the heavens, it's comparing the work of Christ to that Old Testament priest who would pass through the veil into God's presence at the ark. And so what Jesus is doing here, he don't only carries the names of Israel on his chest, but Jesus now bears all of our names on his heart. And he always is on our behalf in front of the Father. This text is telling us that Jesus doesn't just enter an earthly temple, but he actually enters God's heavenly temple where he dwells. That Jesus doesn't just carry our names once a year, but he is always and continually there on our behalf in the Father's presence. That Jesus doesn't rely upon animals to make a sacrifice to just make us clean on the outside, but that Jesus gives his body one time to be the perfect and complete sacrifice to make us clean at the deepest core of our being. So Jesus fulfills all the things that were pictured perfectly. He is at one time the perfect sacrifice and also the sympathetic priest. So the good news to that, why I think that matters, is it's telling us that we can be confident in our relationship with God because Jesus is in heaven right now acting on our behalf. That we must remember not only the work that Jesus did at the cross, Good Friday, or even at the empty tomb on resurrection, but we need to know that Jesus is working right now as our great high priest. That his presence in heaven, it's a continual reminder to God that our sin has been paid for. That we are washed and are now clean. That our righteousness is in Jesus. And that we have full access to God at any point. Well, the reason Jesus, he is able to uniquely fulfill this role, it's in that third phrase. It tells us that Jesus is the Son of God. That because he is both God and man, he could fully do what no priest ever could. That as God, he can represent God and he can bring God to us. But as a man, he can be our interceder, represent us, and die on our behalf. That he is the Son of God, he is our high priest, and because of those things, he now unites us to God. So to connect the dots, you know, seeing and understanding 
what it means for Jesus to be our great high priest, I think that provides the reason and the motivation for why we should hold fast. It's as if the author of Hebrews is saying, well, who compares to Jesus? Can anyone else stand in your place as your great high priest before God the Father and act on your behalf? That who else is ascended to the throne ruling for you? That who else carries your name on his heart in the presence of God? And his point is, if no one compares to this person, Jesus, then why would you let him slip away? Why would you start to hold loosely to him or walk away? Instead, hold fast, cling to him. He's the only one who can be our great high priest. So that's what we're told in this first imperative or action. Hold fast to your great high priest. Well, before moving on to verses 15 and 16, I want to pause to consider, well, what might this mean for us? How do we hold fast? Richard Phillips, he says, this priestly work here, it's mentioned in response to their fears. Fears that might cause them not to hold fast. He writes, Jesus and his saving work are set forth here as the antidote mainly to fear. Fear of failure, fear of falling away, and even the fear of drawing near to God that paralyzes so many Christians. My encouragement today is to do less looking in and less looking around and do more looking up to your great high priest. That when we look inside, we're haunted by our own failures and guilt and sin. The reality is on our own, we are undeserving of God and we cannot stand in his presence. And so looking in can only cause fear, it can only push us away from God, and it can only create distance. But it's also true that when we look around, it creates fear. That life all around us, that circumstances are hard, that life is challenging and painful, that there will be many threats to faithfulness to Jesus. And so it raises the question, when you look around, will you falter or will you hold fast? Will you grumble or will you be grateful? Even good things. There's so many shiny idols in our life that vie for our affection. And so it challenges us. Will you hold fast to Jesus or will you start to hold fast to other things in your life? Will you start to cling to your possessions, to your career, to your job, to your finances, to good health, to having control over a situation, to that illusion of being the perfect family? So whether it's the snare of idolatry that you're tempted to grab onto and not worry about Jesus so much, or whether it's pain, persecution, or suffering pushing you away, we're tempted when we look in or look around to stop holding fast. But the good news is there's a place to look. When we look up in faith, when we see who Jesus is, when we're reminded of his work as our great high priest, it gets rid of the fear and it gives us faith. That when we remember that Jesus is there on my behalf, that Jesus represents me, that Jesus gives me my perfect righteousness, then we have boldness to come to God. Then we know that despite what's going on, we will have mercy and grace in our time of need. My encouragement is to not listen to the whispers of your accuser that would push you away, but to listen 
to the word of your advocate and cling to him. So don't relate to God and don't approach God on your merit, but come to him, draw near to him, and approach him based on Jesus being your great high priest. Look up to Jesus. He has, he is, and he will forever be working on our behalf. Matthew Henry writes this. He says, How near should Christ's name be to our hearts, since he is pleased to lay our names so near his? And what a comfort it is to us that in all our addresses or prayers to God, that the great high priest of our profession has the names of all his people upon his breast before the Lord for a memorial, presenting them to God. Let not any good Christians fear that God has forgotten them, nor question his being mindful of them upon all occasions, when they are not only engraven upon the palms of his hands, but they are engraven upon the heart of the great intercessor. So we're told to hold fast to the one who holds on to you, to cling to Christ, our great high priest. But at this point, I have to pause and I have to give the bad news that that should not give confidence to everyone. That if you've been listening and you've heard that, that verse, it tells us that there is a condition to these promises. It tells us that these things are true if you are in Christ Jesus. That if you're not in Jesus, if you've never turned to Jesus and trusted in him, then you do not have Jesus as a mediator standing in your behalf but you stand before God on your own merit and on your own works and with your own sin still exposed. And that is not a place we want to be standing. As we saw even remembering the Old Testament story of Israel, no one on their own could approach God, and that's why we need a high priest. So that's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus offers that to you today. So whether this is your second week or your 50th year in church, if you've never trusted in Jesus, If he's not your high priest, you can turn to him today. That you can lay down your life and your sin, and you can have a high priest who stands on your behalf with his righteousness. Well, second application to consider today is whether we're actually, as believers, holding fast to Jesus, or whether we're loosening the grip and letting Christ slip. You know, many churchgoers, many people even in this room, We have the temptation that we believe what the Bible says about Jesus. We think those things are good and true, and yet we think they're largely insignificant to our life. That other than Jesus maybe saving us and answering some prayers, he's not all that important to everyday life. And so what we do is rather than holding firm to him daily, we start to loosen that grip, we put him on the back burner, and we think he really doesn't matter until things fall But what the Bible, what the New Testament does again and again is it holds up the real Jesus. It zooms in on him and it shows us his words, his work, his promises, his person, and his attributes. And it helps us see that this Jesus, he satisfies us more than anything else on earth. That this Jesus demands to run every area of our life. That this Jesus has real power for us. Power to change us. Power to set us free. And Jesus gives hope. And so the Bible holds up this view of Jesus and says, don't just nod your head at him. Don't just say, I kind of agree with what the Bible says. But it says, look to him 
and hold fast, hold firm, cling to Jesus. That he has more wisdom, more power, more strength, more grace and mercy than we can imagine. He has exactly what we need. My hope in this sermon is just to help inch ourselves towards that. To stop settling with thin views of Jesus and loose grip on Jesus. But to have a big, deep, rich view of who he is and why it matters so that we hold fast to him. So that we see Jesus in all his grace, in all his glory, and we hold firm. Well, having looked at verse 14 to see our first imperative and reason that we're told here to hold fast to Jesus because he is the great high priest. Let's move to verses 15 and 16 to see our second reason and our second motivation. In verses 15 and 16, we see that the next imperative is to not only hold fast, but to draw near. Follow along verses 15 and 16. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So the second command, it builds on the first. The action given is to draw near to God and his throne of grace. It's almost as if the author of Hebrews, he senses an objection from that first part. So if Jesus is exalted, if he's risen, if Jesus is in heaven and he's adored by the angels, can we really draw near? Can we have confidence in when we hold fast? Or should we fear that he is bigger than us and that he has more important concerns? And so this next part is written to kind of counteract that and say, no, draw near to him. That yes, he is above us and beyond us, but he is like us and he is near us. That we can draw near to God in confidence because he drew drew near to us in compassion. Well, the idea of drawing near, it's not a complicated one. It means to come close to or close the distance between two people. It suggests friendship and intimacy. Notice it's in the present tense, which means keep drawing near. He's saying, don't do it once, but continually draw near to God. My grandmother was from the south, and so she would always say a phrase that reminds me of this. She'd say, y'all come back now, you hear? Say it every week. And her point there was, I want to see you again, and I want to see you as quickly as possible. Don't just come back once. Keep coming. And that's what the Bible is saying when it says, keep drawing near. And so the meaning here, it's not complicated, but I think what is challenging is actually the act of drawing near to God. We struggle to believe that we can do this, that God would allow us and he would have us and he would want us to draw near to him. But this verse is in the Bible. It's here to assure you that if you are in Christ, that you never need to waver or shy away from entering into his presence. That you can boldly and intimately come to him and know him. That God's not like many conceptions we have of him, maybe like a boss or a father-in-law who we kind of respect, but we keep our distance. Instead, the way I kind of wrap my mind around this is thinking about my own dad. You know, when I visit my dad, I don't have to be hesitant about coming in. I knock on the door, and I come 
right into his presence. There's never a sense of, should I be here in the back of my mind? Because I know my dad wants me there. I know I'm welcome. I don't have to put on nice clothes. I can come to him in my sweatpants if I want. I don't have to have something important to say or to talk about. I don't have to have anything to brag on. My dad just wants me there in his presence for our friendship and with fellowship. I never have to wonder, am I welcome? Can I stay? I never have to fear, am I going to do something wrong or say something wrong and my dad's going to want me to leave? Because I'm his son, I'm loved, I'm welcomed, and he wants me to draw near. Well, I think that's part of what is being envisioned here, that God wants us to draw near. He wants us to have a warm and a close and an affectionate relationship with him. Not just one of formality, but one of friendship. So it raises the question that, do you approach God in that way? Do you think of God in those warm terms? Or do we tend to think of him in terms of distance and coldness? Well, God is trying to assure us here that we are welcome and that we are loved. Well, verse 16, it also tells us this place we draw near to, the place where God is, it is a throne of grace. Now, a throne is a place where God reigns in all his power and sovereignty and might. It's a position of strength. It says that he's in charge, that he's in control, and that he is the king. But the good news here is that it's not only a throne of glory, but it says it's also a throne of grace. That we should be awed by his holiness, but we should also approach him in nearness. You know, if this were only a throne of power, we would be afraid to draw near. And if it were only a throne of grace, but there was no power, we'd have no reason to draw near. But this tells us that God's throne is a throne of grace and glory. It's a place of both mercy and might. And so because of that, we can draw near, and we should draw near. Well, we've seen this was the second imperative. It's the second action we're told to do. We are told to hold fast, but also to draw near to the throne of grace. Well, to again see the reason or the motivation for why we can and should do that, we'll look at verse 15. It says the reason we can do this is because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let's answer a couple of questions. So how is Jesus like us and unlike us? And then how does that motivate drawing near to him? Well, first, this text tells us that Jesus is like us and that he has participated in our weakness. He's walked through human trials and earthly temptations. And here the language of weakness, it doesn't suggest sinfulness, but just that he lived a fully human life. That on this broken, fallen world, he walked through the sufferings that we have experienced. You know, it tells us that the Son of God, that when he became the Son of Man at the Incarnation, that he doesn't come in some superhero fashion. That he's not like many of the DC comics or Marvel movies where he kind of looks like us from the outside, but he's nothing like us on the inside. Where he can't really bleed or cry or suffer or even die that Jesus actually experiences those same human 
things. And the Gospels, they're full of these descriptions to assure us of that and remind us of that. That even though Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, he has walked in our shoes. Just to give a few examples of how Jesus experienced the things we did and why then he has empathy as our great high priest. The New Testament tells us that Jesus became hungry, that he grew tired, that he got away for rest. tells us because of that he had to take naps. So he's definitely like me. I mean, I love naps, so Jesus is like that. At least I loved naps before I had a baby, and she stole all my chances for naps. But not bitter. Well, Jesus also, he knew what it was like to be slandered or to be betrayed. Jesus knew when his disciples all left him what it was like to be alone. That in the garden, Jesus felt anguish. He experienced fear. And then at the cross, he experienced suffering and loss to its fullest extent. Verse 15, it tells us that he not only walked through similar trials, but it says he actually also endured temptation. It says that Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned. You know, one example from this is uh, Matthew 4. It talks about Jesus going into the wilderness where he is tempted by the devil. It tells us that for 40 days, Jesus didn't eat anything. And so the devil tells him, well, take this stone and turn it into a piece of bread and have some food. Well, the temptation there, it was to not trust the provision of the Father, to believe that God did not have his best in mind or that God had withheld good or that God would not come through on his promises. And so rather than falling for that, Jesus remains faithful. He holds fast, and Jesus never sins. That he goes 40 days without eating anything, and yet he remains righteous. Now to me, that's a big deal. If you or I go four hours without eating, we're ready to sin right away. But the first person who gives us a dirty look or cuts us off on our way to Chipotle, we immediately sin. And yet Jesus went 40 days and he never did once. And so this text is telling us that yes, he is like us, and yet he is unlike us in very significant ways. That he was tempted and yet he never sinned. That he experienced our brokenness and yet he never gave in to unrighteousness. That he is similar and yet he's distinct. That he's like us in all the ways we need for him to be a sympathetic high priest. And yet he's unlike us in all the ways we need for him to be a perfect, righteous substitute. That he's with us, and yet he's above us so that he can be for us. He's human, but he's holy. Well, this emphasis on Jesus being like us and participating in our weakness, it's given as the reason for why we should and why we can draw near to this throne of grace. That because, because Jesus became like us, because Jesus walked through it, that he sympathizes with us in it. But the word here highlights not just that he feels what we feel, not only that he's sympathetic to us, but it actually indicates that his ministry as a sympathetic high priest, it includes his ability to give mercy and give grace in our time of need. Now, I often feel sympathy for someone, but I have no idea or no way of helping them. That's actually true pretty much every time my wife cries. I feel bad, I feel sympathy, but I have no clue what to do. 
But when this is talking about Jesus being a sympathetic priest, it's not just saying that he feels what we've, we've gone through, but it's telling us he can also help, that he's able to help, that he wants to help, and that because he endured similar things, he knows exactly how to help. For me, a few things can comfort a Christian like remembering that Jesus walked through what we've walked through, and yet he remained righteous, that he knows our struggles, and because of that, he's able to help. The reason we can and the reason we should draw near to God to receive that mercy and grace is because on that throne is a great high priest who knows our struggles, and yet he offers his strength. So in this passage, we're told not only to hold fast to Jesus, but we're told to draw near to Jesus. That because Jesus drew near to us with compassion and does draw near with compassion, that we can draw near to him in confidence. So how do we take all this truth from God's word and what do we do with it to help it cement it into our hearts? We don't just want to hear a sermon. We don't just want to learn some neat things about Jesus but we want to love Jesus more and we want to follow Jesus more. So I want to give a couple final applications. Our first application might be easy to assume, but I want to quickly remind us of something. You know, when we ask that question, well, how do I hold fast? How do I actually draw near? How do I approach God confidently in this kind of way? The Bible tells us the two primary ways we do that are through the word and prayer. And I know you get... Tired of hearing that, we get tired of saying it. There's no new innovative solution. The Bible tells us that any relationship takes work, it takes time, and it takes communication. And the Bible tells us that the same thing is true with God, that we have to regularly be hearing from him, letting him talk through getting into the Bible, and we have to regularly talk back to him in prayer. And so the way we draw near is by regular, intentional, meaningful time, and word, and prayer. One way you can do that, as Tim mentioned tonight, that you can come back at 5 o'clock. We're going to spend time together as a church praying. It's not because we like to fill up our Sunday nights, but we believe when we do that, when we talk to God, that we draw near to him, and he promises to draw near to us. Well, the second application, and make sure that we don't miss this. It comes from the last phrase of verse 16. It tells us to draw near in our time of need. While we know that because of Jesus, we have access to the Father at any point, and we can bring any situation to God, it tells us there is one time when we especially can and should approach God. It's our time of need. So whether we are struggling, whether we have sorrow, whether we have sin, whether we're suffering, This is saying don't let those things push you away from God, but let those things cause you to draw near. That he tells you to come to him in your time of need. It tells us that when we do that, in that time of need, when we need him most and we draw near, it says at that point we receive mercy and we find the grace we're looking for to help us in a time of need. Well, the biblical truth, it's not that God helps those who help themselves. The biblical truth is that God helps the helpless who ask him for help. And so right now, think about what is that thing in my life right now that is a trial? What's the thing that wakes me up at night or is on my heart during 
the day? What causes you anxiety or fear or sadness? Maybe what sin is your life that you just want to conquer? Are you alone? Are you weary? Are you spiritually empty? Well, in these and many more circumstances, our glorious and our gracious King, He tells you to draw near to His throne of grace, that you can receive mercy and you will receive grace in your time of need. Charles Spurgeon said it this way when he preached on Hebrews 4. He says, when circumstances are particularly trying, Jesus is particularly tender. Hear that again. When circumstances are particularly trying, Jesus is in those moments to you particularly tender. So my encouragement, church, is not to let hard days, hard things push you away from God, but to in those moments lean into him, to hold fast and to draw near. Even this week, as things get especially trying, remember that line from Spurgeon, that when it is especially trying, that Jesus is your great high priest and he is especially tender. So what is your time of need today? Again, are you struggling? Are you sorrowful or sad? Are you suffering? Is there sin in your life? Whatever that time of need is, Jesus invites you. He tells you. He welcomes you to draw near to his throne to find grace in your time of need. Would you pray with me as we close? God, we thank you that Jesus not only died for our sins, that he not only rose from the grave, but even right now, he works and acts as our great high priest. Lord, we're thankful that we have hope and we have help because Jesus understands what we're going through, and then he offers the grace and the mercy we need. So God, as we sing now before the throne of God above, we pray that you would seal these truths, these beautiful promises on our heart, and that you would encourage us even this week. We ask it in his name. Amen.